Hello, I'm Greg, and I'm recording this on Record Store Day 2015, so let's have an inappropriate conversation about vinyl box sets. Actually, I'm going to cover more ground than just vinyl, but it seemed like for a record store day, especially with the resurgence of vinyl in the used record store as we know it, it made sense to call it vinyl box sets, and as we get to the different drummer, I'll do a better job of explaining why. But first, I want to tie this episode in from a couple of different perspectives to the week we just did, looking at the It's Not Who You Know topic, Garth Brooks is a different drummer, and there I made a reference to the band Bare Naked Ladies. And perhaps it makes sense for me to cover those loose ends right up front. From the Garth Brooks perspective, I mentioned in that Different Drummer segment that I was frustrated by his desire to sell music only through Walmart as an available channel in, you know, just the past few years. And one of the things that bothered me about that is that I think that it's really important that we support the used record store and that he's uh, had a career of being somewhat opposed to the resale of music and used record stores as a concept. And as the MP3 era began to put more pressure on record stores as a chain, a chain from which I have some experience as somebody who managed a record store and did some um, merchandise analysis and stores analysis for record stores during my career, I do take it a little bit personally when somebody is indifferent to the demise of that particular branch of retail or uh, decides to line up as its enemy. So today, for the first year in a couple of years, I actually made a point to go out on record store day and shop. And among the things I bought were uh, three of the discs that were part of a multi-disc box set from Garth Brooks called Blame It All on My Roots. It was a series of albums where he was recording remakes from the perspective of classic rock or uh, classic R&B. And Garth Brooks, as a consummate performer, does an excellent job reinterpreting songs, or in many cases, representing the songs pretty accurately. He, He could have been a cover band singer in college, for all I knew. I never got out to the bars to hear him play, not at uh, the country venue, Tumbleweed, nor at any of the other venues. So I don't know whether his version of Billy Joel's Shameless is the blueprint from which we should look at at Garth Brooks from the perspective of interpreting what we might call classic rock or classic adult-oriented rock. But so far on the CDs that I've listened to, he's done just that. He's done a pretty good job. And I just wanted to note the irony that I was going to a used record store on used record store day. Everything I bought was by Garth Brooks, including his newest release, because I would prefer to spend my money there rather than at Walmart. And the other irony is, of course, without really planning to, in fact, honestly, without even realizing it, I bought parts of a box set. You see, when I saw these Garth Brooks recordings that I'd never seen on a shelf before, I knew they were from the Walmart era. I don't go to Walmart that often, and when I do, uh, I don't really go to the CD section at all. I may stop at a discount DVD bin, but not the CD section. So I didn't have any context for Garth Brooks having released a box set that had a two or three discs of greatest hits collection, along with these interpretations of other music genres. But on a day that I planned to record a, a inappropriate conversations show on the topic of box sets, here I was actually buying pieces and parts of box sets. The other reference that I wanted to make back to the previous inappropriate conversation show was the band Bare Naked Ladies. I talked about them from the perspective of their debut album, Gordon, or at least their international debut, Gordon, being such a huge success, and fans of the group having a hard time adjusting to their subsequent releases, and how important the album's stunt was for them in reaching a new audience and setting off on a slightly different direction, sort of turning and pivoting, if you will. And the story I was telling was that I missed an opportunity to hear the band perform live for a very small venue in the company that I worked at, and the opportunity to meet them. I won't restate the story here. But it makes sense if I'm going to talk about box sets to use them as an example and kind of quote their lyrics. Because from that Gordon album, box set, the song, may be really the best example of what I'm talking about. 
as they work their way through the first couple of verses, they get to a point where they're describing a typical box set or from the perspective of the protagonist of the song, kind of talking through a box set. And I want to quote the lyrics a little bit, partly because they're humorous and partly because I think they give us a pretty good sense of where the, the box set in rock and roll music is today. So here's Bare Naked Ladies. Disc one, it's where we've begun. It's all my greatest hits. And if you're a fan, then you know that you've already got them. Disc two, it's all brand new. An album's worth of songs, but we had to leave the whole disc blank because some other label bought them. I've talked about this numerous times on Inappropriate Conversations, looking at music in particular. How frustrating I find the record labels. I've leveled the accusation before, and I'll level it again here. In many ways, the traditional, monolithic you know, version of record labels we have in our mind are more committed to the idea of making music unavailable than they are about the idea of making music available. Again, Garth Brooks, the last two or three things he's put out musically, by putting them out solely in Walmart as a store, he's making the music unavailable. By not allowing his newest release to be downloaded on iTunes or eMusic or Zune or elsewhere, he's making the music unavailable, not available. Well, here's a retail concept that I'm committed to. It's it baked in with the notion that the customer is always right. I, as a customer, will decide which stores I go to. Meaning I, as a customer, will decide which stores I buy your music from. Just like when I get there, I'll decide which credit card I'm using or whether I pay in cash. And if I choose to pay in cash, you won't refuse my cash. And if you decline my me using a Discover or American Express card, that's fine. But if, if you only take Visa and American Express, I'm going to pick which one of those two I choose to pay with. If MasterCard's okay, it's my call if I'm going to spend my money that way. And I kind of resent both the record labels inserting their influence in making music unavailable, or at least trying to restrict the channels in which you can purchase the product. In some ways, it's so frustrating. It would be as if every time an artist like Garth Brooks put out a new recording, he changed the format of the product as well, so that in addition to spending 15 bucks or so trying to buy the latest set of songs that he'd recorded in a studio, you also had to upgrade to a completely new set of hardware because he was putting the songs out only on a piece of software that could only be played on his hardware, meaning you might have to spend four, five, six hundred bucks just to get a new recording. In some ways, that's what it's like when you decide your music isn't going to be available in MP3 files, or if it is, it's not going to be available on iTunes, or if it's only going to be available in stores, it's only going to be available in one store only. So disc two, although incredibly sarcastic, the idea of a, of a second disc in a multi-disc box set being completely empty because at the last minute, the 11th hour, uh, legal shenanigans between two record labels meant that the disc had to be released blank. Very interesting. As the song pro proceeds, disc three refers to uh, just being some recordings from a high school play where he was the star but didn't remember his lines. Uh, disc four, back to quoting the lyrics. Disc four, never released before, and you can tell why. It's just some demos I recorded in my basement. Disc five, I was barely alive. I was coughing up a lung, so they had to use a special computer as my replacement. Disc 6, a dance remix so I can catch the latest trend and it'll make you scratch your head and wonder where my taste went. That's the gist of, in this case, a six-disc box set from the tongue-in-cheek humorous song from Bare Naked Ladies' album, Gordon. And it gives you a sense of where the box set is today. I want to start not so much with the box set from the perspective of vinyl, I'll get there in just a second, but more from the perspective of CD. Because I was working in stores when the uh, the tide turned, and all of a sudden, the latest craze was compact discs on box sets, compilations that were bigger than just a what you call a one or two CD set. Because at the onset of the CD, one thing that happened right off was that the capacity limitation imposed by vinyl was immediately expanded. Compact discs were more than an hour long in length, and it was rare to find any album that was more than 45 to 50 minutes long in length. So you'd begin to see CDs carrying more music than the, the album version of that could, and if uh, artists back then in the late 80s were releasing songs, both CD and album at the same time, decisions had to be made. Were you going to get two record sets that didn't really need to be two record sets in length? 
Was the CD going to have bonus tracks the album didn't have? That tended to be the approach that you saw. And even going back into the 70s and 60s, you would see instances like this where maybe the 45-inch single would come out with a song on the B-side that wasn't available on the album itself. And you sort of get that, that rarities collection that creeps in. To me, the best example of this is Led Zeppelin. The Led Zeppelin box set exploded in stores from a retail perspective in a, in a way that nothing had done before in the realm of rock and roll box sets. And frankly, everything that happened after that was either a, an aftershock, a copycat, a reverberation. Everything was sort of being measured on the standard of that first Led Zeppelin box set. And it was a box set I didn't need to get because I had already acquired all of the Led Zeppelin on vinyl and in many cases had replaced it on CD and in some cases replaced that CD with digital CD. See, the time that this four-disc set was released, it wasn't like it was the only way for people to get a digitally remastered copy of Led Zeppelin's music. Looking back, just to confer that it really was 1990, to get my dates right, and September 1990 was the exact release month, the review from Stephen Thomas Erlewine on allmusic.com calls it out pretty well. Led Zeppelin's primary method of artistic expression was their albums. Although they had a handful of hit singles, and although selected album tracks were played endlessly on the radio, the true range of their music is only evident on the original albums, which were carefully sequenced and assembled. He goes on to be a little bit more deferential to the box set, you know, calling out that Jimmy Page did put a new song sequence together to where the album was, the, these albums, these four CDs, were presenting Led Zeppelin's music in a different way, but not necessarily in a just a generic greatest hits kind of a way. And it did include a couple of bonus tracks. Uh, this was the way that Led Zeppelin fans could finally get their hands on a digital copy of Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? Uh, Traveling Riverside Blues and more. But the Led Zeppelin box set actually showed me as, as a retailer that you could get people to rebuy music they already had just because the packaging was kind of cool. I was always a little bit vanilla about the packaging because, to me, I was trying to keep my CDs on one side of the room from my uh, music collection perspective and vinyl albums on the other. And because a lot of the box sets originally came in what were basically album-sized packaging, uh, 12-inch wide boxes, with the CDs sitting somewhere like inside a plastic container to hold them together, the box sets we see now, which are shaped more like a, a thicker compact disc, that took a while for the industry to get to that particular format. And so this 12 by 12 square fit more in with my album collection than it did with my CD collection. And in some ways, I found that frustrating, more than just a little bit annoying, as a matter of fact. But I will say that the CD era ushered in, for me, uh, more box set purchases that were intentional than before. I want to get to the vinyl piece in a minute, but a lot of the vinyl box sets that I acquired when I was, you know, in that high school college period were almost accidental. I didn't realize if I was doing like a mail order purchase that what was going to be coming to me in the mail was a box set. Even if I sort of knew on one hand that it was going to be a three record set, not just a one or two disc set, that it was actually going to come packaged really, uh, you know, intricately as a box. So some of the box sets that I have in my collection that are album, that are vinyl, are classical music. But first, looking at it from the perspective of classic rock more than anything else, I'm going to kind of walk through my collection a little bit and call out right up front that Led Zeppelin is one that I don't have because I already had everything. And I have a few on cassette, although the cassette box set didn't seem necessarily to be a great idea. Uh, for me, it works so much better on either 12-inch vinyl or on compact disc. I've got a Yes collection, Derek and the Dominoes, uh, and kind of an expanded version of, of their Layla collection, uh, and of course the entire Bible on cassette, uh, mainly because the price was right on those purchases. No, instead, my box sets come maybe in three kinds of flavors. One is sort of the entire output of a band. My favorite example of this might be the box that I've got from The Jam. It's every song from every album by The Jam. And since I hadn't accumulated a lot of their music on CD, this was a quick way of comprehensively replacing vinyl with, with disc. The Doors did that as well, but the collection I have from The Doors would be more the second kind. Sort of a, a rarities or hits, you know, kind of gathering things together. 
So it was a mixture of best of stuff and rarities unreleased stuff. And the two-disc set from Kansas called Legacy, kind of the same thing. It's more or less an expanded two-disc greatest hits collection that goes all the way back to the beginning. But by inserting alternate cuts, uh, demo versions, live versions, it has that rarities flavor to it that the Doors box set certainly has. For Johnny Cash, uh, it's a little bit of a different flavor. This one more the new material flavor. So for Johnny Cash, the Unearthed Collection, at the time of his death, his untimely death, despite having lived you know, a very successful and long life, he had recorded more than 100 songs that the American record label had not gotten around to releasing in his new folk period, the revival period that had brought him more than just a few accolades. And I had been, over the years, collecting, at that point, four or maybe five, if the fifth had come out yet, um, of all these recordings. So it's a part of Johnny Cash's catalog where my collection is comprehensive. And this unearthed box set was the rest. And some of it was more in a raw form. It was uh, demo versions. But some of the music he originally recorded and released for this American Recordings label was like that. And it gave me the opportunity to say, what, what, what else was in those sessions that hadn't yet been released? If I skip over to jazz, then you begin to get that live album piece. My Wynton Marsalis collection is a series of live performances. The Fall has a bootleg release uh, five-disc set, I believe, that one as well. Again, all a series of, of live recordings. And then Casablanca gives me a nice, uh, a nice entry to talk about our different drummer if I choose to do it here. Because Casablanca is not a box set of one particular performer. It's a box set that's a retrospective look back at a record label featuring music by Parliament Funkadelic and Donna Summer and other bands. Sort of that disco era and the end of the record label looking back at their sort of comprehensive output. And I don't know at the time that, you know, Casablanca was putting out the music that they were on vinyl, that they would have conceived of a box set being produced to look back across the history of the business side, I guess you'd put it, of the music business, but that's exactly what happened. And that box set had enough interesting things, expanded cuts, 12-inch singles, that it was one that I picked up. And again, I got a great price on it, but I, I nevertheless picked it up. The different drummer today is going to take us in the direction of vinyl box set, and I'm going to make an argument, and it's an argument that I can't necessarily prove. I've tried to research this, but I don't have the information I need to back it up. But I'm going to suggest, for the sake of argument, that the box set we have today can be traced back almost to an origin story. If there's much history before this, it's history I can't find. It's going back to the Longines Symphonette Society. Now, if Longines Symphonette sounds familiar, it would, frankly, to anybody who's even at all attentive to alternative rock of the early 1990s, because the other citation I'd point out from 90s alternative rock, besides Bare Naked Ladies and their hit single box set, would be to talk about Birdhouse in Your Soul from They Might Be Giants, the first song, second track on the uh, album Flood, because it has the line, My story is infinite, like a Longines symphonette. It doesn't rest. So who is Longines, and what is Longines symphonette, and how does this all tie together to the concept of vinyl box sets? Well, Longines is a watch company based in Switzerland, Probably they're uh, best known for the Aviator's Watch, sort of their flagship product. A company director was a friend of Charles Lindbergh, quoting Wikipedia here. After his transatlantic flight, Lindbergh designed a watch to help with air navigation. It was built to his specifications, and the Aviator's Watches are still produced today, again, according to Wikipedia. The interesting thing to me about Longines, the company, is that at some point along the way, they expanded into uh, you know, cross-marketing, promotions, the kind of things you'd expect a big company to do. Uh, sponsorship for Formula One racing and uh, sports like gymnastics and basketball. Part of that was creating the Longines Symphonette Society. So Longines Symphonette was a pre-recorded classical music program broadcast nightly on many mutual broadcasting systems radio stations from 1943 to 1949. It then moved to CBS, where it was heard on Sundays in the afternoon from 1949 to 1957. All of this, of course, well before my time. I'm relying on Wikipedia and other online sources to give me the information. 
The most important thing for me, and where I come in, is with the Longines Symphonet Society. This was a record label which specialized in releasing classical radio programs and multiple record box sets. So carrying the, the sponsorship name of Longines, Longines Company sold its record business later to Warner Brothers Music, and reissues of these recordings uh, since the 1990s have been credited only to the Symphonet Society, no longer carrying a reference to the watch company. Meaning that if you see an album or a used record in a record store from either Longines Symphonet or the Symphonet Society or the Longines Symphonet Society, any combination of those things, we're talking about this. I can remember as a young kid, probably only in maybe first or second grade, not really unaware of what a record club was. So the notion that a um, knock might come on the door, the doorbell might ring, and the postal clerk would be bringing to our home a box, again, 12 by 12 shape or bigger, carrying albums, would have been a real surprise. That would have caught me off guard. And I don't really know kind of where the decision came from on my parents' side to purchase these individually or to sign up for some sort of club but I do distinctly remember three, and it might be at least three, but I remember three albums from, call it the late 60s, early 70s, at the very latest, it goes back to the very early 1970s, coming to us from the Longines Symphonet Society. One of them was an Al Hurt collection uh, called uh, something like Al Hurt, America's Greatest Trumpet Artist in the Best of Dixieland Jazz. I didn't spend a lot of time listening to this one. I guess it just it didn't catch my ear. But if we still had it, I would probably want to give it a try. It's got songs that would be interesting to me. Uh, his version of Just a Closer Walk with Thee or Stardust, for example. The other one, called Masterpieces of Music. This was a classical music recording with, uh, just as it describes, uh, a set of songs that would have been regarded probably as the the hits or the classics of classical music. The one that I remember off the top of my head as being an obvious choice for putting an album together for an, somewhat of a novice listener, an introduction to classical music listener, the kind of thing that might appeal as well to a, you know, a kid in early elementary school, would be the, the version there of the William Tell Overture. I recall hearing that and connecting it to the Lone Ranger for the very first time, not having any reference for what the theme to the Lone Ranger really came from, outside of that. But the real breakthrough moment for me out of that Masterpieces of Music album was the last song on one of the sides. I don't want to guess that it was the last song on side one versus two, but I think it was the last song on one of the sides. And it was a track called Polonaise. It didn't specify the opus number. This was, again, classical music for novice listeners. Didn't even specify the key. But it was the Heinrich Wieniawski track, Polonaise, in D, which I've featured before on the Inappropriate Conversation show called Harder Core Than Thou, because this was perhaps the first time I heard classical music in a way that made it seem challenging rather than a particular variety of easy listening music. Most of the classical music that we get exposed to as kids is, is designed to soothe. Brahms' The Blue Danube Waltz comes immediately to mind, but what uh, this particular Wieniawski performance was doing, was doing things with a violin that I didn't frankly imagine that a violin was capable of doing. And over time, as I grew older and began to like the song, enjoy hearing it again, enjoy hearing it from other artists performing the same work, it occurred to me that this was something that I had never met a violin player in person who could even begin to perform. I was part of the orchestra in high school for at least a year, maybe more. And in all that time, it kind of it occurred to me that a lot of the people who were learning to play their musical instrument, just like I was learning to play varieties of percussion and drums, that no one had yet achieved any sort of level of expertise, right? And it would require a serious level of expertise to be able to play this particular work and works that I would later find that were similar to it and like it, uh, to even be able to get through the chart end to end successfully without leaving tracks out or slowing it down enough. Uh, I remember sitting in class and hearing particular elements of like Rimsky-Korsakov being performed over and over and over again because of how much effort it took first and second violinists to get that particular part of a song right. And nowhere can I think of a better example of that than the Polonaise track on this Longines Symphonet album uh, featuring the work of composer Wieniawski. The real one for me, though, 
the one that won me over, and the one that has led me later in life to seek out recordings by Longines Symphonette Society was Mexicali Brass. The exact name of the album was the Longines Symphonette Society proudly presents more of the new sound of gay fiesta, Mexicali Brass, featuring new hits from south of the border. In the eyes of many people, this might have just been a knockoff attempt at the success and the chart-topping popularity of Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, but I don't think it was really an attempt to knock anything off, because Herb Albert was also appearing on Longines Symphonette collections that were part of, again, that very early period of what I might call Record Club. At least, Record Club is a method of delivering vinyl music, vinyl box sets in some cases, to people's homes. I was at a flea market several years ago and knew that all I had was a very scratched up, children-loved copy of this Mexicali Brass album from Longines Symphonette that was not in very good shape. And I'd never successfully found any of these songs on CD. Still haven't, actually, found any of these songs on CD, despite the fact that I have later finally found good versions on MP3, um, no longer under the control of, of Symphonette Society via Warner. Apparently the ownership has changed and now it's out on a different label and it's still credited as being the artist Mexicali Brass performing songs from south of the border. If I remember, I'll put a link to my favorite of all these tracks uh, on the show posting. So if you go to uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org, where I always have a blurb for every one of the entries in the Inappropriate Conversations series, comments are enabled there as well, by the way. I'll hopefully put a link up to, at least from a YouTube perspective, you can hear and see the name and the title and track this particular music down if you choose to track it down on iTunes that's where I got my digital copy I also can be reached speaking of ways to interact with the show uh, via email at uh, ic underscore greg at hotmail.com but when I got this uh, I was in this used record store this flea market and I found a five disc set our album for Mexicali Brass was just one album so ours turned out was sort of like the best of the best of the box set because it had to have been released at the same time, and perhaps my parents had a choice of buying the five-album collection or buying just the one, and perhaps having never heard it before, and sort of taking a flyer on the music as it was, they went with the single vinyl album. But every song from that single vinyl album is re represented on this five-album set. And in addition to the one I'm going to share, the Golden Wedding song called La Sequentaine, um, my favorites included the uh, easy listening standard Green Eyes, a uh, track called Mexico A Go Go, Mama Inez, and a song I later heard done in a similar style by Esquivel called Anna. Just an excellent collection. And to me, the thing I thought of first when I thought of Record Store Day, some of my most successful trips to the used record store, and especially looking at it particularly from the, from the perspective of vinyl, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, most of my vinyl collection is classical music. If I get a vinyl box set, it's not because I actually went looking for a box set. Not for the equivalent of a best-of collection like the Led Zeppelin box set turned out to be. But more, wanting to get like an entire piece of work by Bach or Haydn. Or, uh, the best example might be The Messiah. I have an album, vinyl box set collection of Handles and the Messiah, performed by the Academy of Ancient Music. And I like the Academy of Ancient Music so much that I have those other artists, those other composers I mentioned, also have box sets available through Christopher Hogwood conducting the Academy of Ancient Music. Their shtick was that they were going back to the most original instrumentation you possibly could. So harpsichord instead of piano, and violins of a particular age, of a particular style, which made it very interesting. But you couldn't get, like, The Messiah on less than a two- or three-album collection back then. It's a two-CD set, so the math kind of works. I also have a collection of all nine symphonies by Beethoven. Obviously, that's going to come to you in a, in a multi-disc set. Wagner's Parsifal. I think I might have mentioned this a few years back, talking about relationships with animals, relationships with pets, that I can remember on one occasion for the uh, cat and dog that we had at the time, playing some music loud around the house at a time when it was just me and the pets, and I was you know cleaning up, doing a few things, and when the overture was playing, the animals were happy as a clam. Music was playing, it was enjoyable, but they did not enjoy opera sung in German very much. And in fact, the dog howling and the cat hissing was so annoying that I had to actually take the album off. But again, a complete version of Parsifal, 
Wagner's opera going to come out on multiple discs. Other examples include Steve Reich, the drumming box set, and outside of the realm of classical music, things like Laurie Anderson's United States Live 1 through 4. Anderson's a previous different drummer, and when she put out those uh, four concerts on, I think, five LPs was the original you know, configuration of that release, that had to be a box set. I've got a three-disc greatest hits collection of Glenn Miller, along with some uh, hand-me-down box sets, things I wouldn't have bought for myself, one from Lead Belly, one from Guy Lombardo. It's interesting that I say I wouldn't have bought Lead Belly for myself, but I easily could have. I later bought the CD box set of Robert Johnson for myself, and it's not a huge stretch in musical evolution to see the connection between those two. The one I can remember first, though, because, as I mentioned, from a Longines Symphonette perspective, we were getting single-disc versions of these releases, some of which were available in box set form instead. The one I can remember first was my brother bringing something back probably from college. So I might have been at the end of junior high school at this stage, bringing back something called Listen. I don't know how a music appreciation course might be handled today, but I can be 100% sure it wouldn't be handled on vinyl. But maybe as a freshman in college, he had a music appreciation course uh, called Listen. His was the second edition. Joseph Kerman was the compiler, editor, author perhaps of the textbook from Worth Publishers Incorporated. It was a eight-disc set, 16 sides. And in many ways, this Listen box set that he liked enough to bring home from college, was my introduction to music that I, frankly, probably had never heard before. Again, we had classical music in our home, but it was all going to be of the sort of intro variety, the kind of classical music that would tell you that that you were getting a track from William Tell Overture, but not give you the opus, not give you any other information about it, for example. Now, the Listen box that introduced me to uh, the Sir Thomas Morley track, It Was a Lover and His Lass, and in fact, this Joseph Kerman classroom coursework, still my favorite version of that particular song. It was the first time I'd heard the Brandenburg Concertos. In this case, it was Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5 in D major. All three movements were part of it. It appeared to be working through music from an early period to a modern period. And so you have Mozart and Haydn, Chopin, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Verdi. The other one that kind of jumped out at me that I remember was um, the very last disc, the most modern of all the discs, uh, included some tracks from the Ancient Voices of Children work by Crumb. Jumping into the more modern, uh, John Cage, aria for uh, Fontana mix. And it ended up with Louis Armstrong, Willie the Weeper, kind of getting all the way to the point of what we might consider to be the intersection between jazz and classical. Not that I would call that particular work truly classical, but as classic American music. Uh, Louis Armstrong is a pretty good example of the craft. In fact, that's one of the uh, collections I've got, a, a three-CD three set, kind of a career-spanning rep- retrospective of Louis Armstrong. And it's hard to do anything with Louis Armstrong in three discs. It either has to be end-to-end and very shallow, or uh, perhaps a very deep dive in three or four discs into just a very narrow period. And that tends to be how you see it. But this was one of those end-to-end examples of the breadth of range. And it's vinyl that I have in my house today. In fact, it's vinyl that I brought upstairs to look to and refer to during this recording. Partly because it's record store day. Partly because I wanted to talk about vinyl box sets. Not just box sets as a concept. Because the box set became very, very common in the middle of the 1990s. Once the Led Zeppelin success was pretty well secured, you started seeing a lot of combinations of things. Uh, Groups like Steely Dan doing a a retrospective kind of an approach. Elton John and Rod Stewart doing the best of collection sort of an approach. And Metallica being the first one I can remember, willfully combining CD and VHS at the time (laughs) together in a single box set. Now, in addition to talking about what happened in the 90s and that explosion, it's important for us to ask the question, where did all of this come from? Because most of us probably didn't think of box set collections at first, maybe outside of the uh, time-life recorded hits sort of things, the the mellow moods, the country classics, those kind of TV advertisements where you could see a scrolling list of songs that would go on for the full two, three-minute runtime of the commercial where it was hard to get a grip on, well, 50 tracks and more would be the kind of the tagline that the advertisers would use for it. But those weren't the earliest box sets. 
that was an effort to capitalize on something that, from my perspective, had a trailblazer. A trailblazer who's going to be the most unique different drummer I've ever named. Our different drummer today might actually be the person who ran the Longines Symphonette Society record label. His name is Jack Stelzer. I name a different drummer, it's somebody I know. And it's almost never anybody I know personally. Even somebody that I've just had a class with and made fun of and never actually had a real conversation with. Usually it's somebody that I know as a fan from a distance. I've experienced their art. I've read their book. I've embraced their theology. Or I've uh, challenged their theology. It's something along those lines. In this case, I can honestly say that up to maybe nine months ago, I had never heard of Jack Stelzer before in my life. I encountered him while asking myself the question, if I want to talk about box sets one day, am I going to have to name not a person as a different drummer, or even a group as I did for Indigo Girls a couple years back? Am I going to have to name an entity like the Longines Symphonette Society? Something as um, impersonal as that. And the last thing I ever want to do is contribute to what I consider to be one of the biggest political problems our society is facing today. That being the the personhood of corporate entities. It's a mistake. It's leading us down terrible paths. It's going to frame us up for consequences that we're not going to be ready to face. And it's something that we should backtrack from. I don't want to get political here and rail on about Citizens United and other related issues. But our Supreme Court has made serious, almost horrific mistakes in downgrading the meaning of personhood by ascribing personhood to things like corporations and political action committees. So I didn't want to name a different drummer as a record label or a de facto record label, a branch of the marketing arm of a watch company. I needed a person. And just by happenstance, I found that person. You can read this article for for yourself if you want to. It's at a website called forums.stevehoffman.tv slash threads slash I think my grandfather ran the Longines Symphonette Society label dot nine eight three one one. In other words, there's a post for this on a web page that's still available today. And what I want to do for the different drummer segment, because I have no other storytelling to offer here. I have no idea who Stelzer is. I have no idea if the story is true. But it's online. It's verifiable in that sense. And so what I'll do is read a post from somebody else's forum, from somebody I haven't met. In the text of the uh, webpage, it's the grandson of someone named Jack Stelzer. Here we are. My grandfather was Jack Stelzer, who used to work as an accountant for Longines in Hartford, Connecticut. He retired from the company around 1972, then moved down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he served in local government until he died in 1990. Nicest guy you'd ever meet, and one of my major role models over the years. Again, this is the uh, posting by somebody, somebody perhaps somewhat anonymous to me. Uh, crap from the past is the, uh, the username, the handle, the login of the user, <laughs> which is great. Carrying on with his quotes. He was the one responsible for giving me my first record player, a Philips Kids unit with a very sturdy metal platter where the detachable cover housed the speaker, and my first batch of 45s, which included a promo copy of Gladys Knight and the Pips, You Need Love Like I Do, Don't You?, which may very well be the smokinest song ever absorbed by a four-year-old. Not surprisingly, he was probably responsible for my little obsession with records. I'm sure we all have similar stories. Speaking as Greg... I know I do. Back to the post. At his house down in Florida, he always had a wall full of old Longines multi-LP box sets. There must have been at least a hundred, with titles that were of little interest to a kid. Stuff with Candlelight, or A Million and One Strings, or Montavani, or stuff along those lines. I do remember a bunch of Herb Albert records, but I don't remember the specifics. And I wonder, speaking as Greg, was he remembering all Herb Albert records, or... 
did this Mexicali brass collection I've got my hands on get sort of merged in as being, well, if nothing else, the same genre? Back to the post. Well, many years later in 2005, I met one of the people who worked for my grandfather back then. She was a lovely woman, probably in her 80s, and still sharp as a tack. She confirmed that he was beloved by the people who worked for him, which wasn't a surprise to me, but was still, it was still wonderful to hear from someone outside the family. She also told me that he ran the department that made those records. This was news to me. It turns out that he didn't have a wall of records just because he liked music, which is what I'd assumed since I was four, but because those were his products that made money for Longines. And she did confirm that the Herb Albert albums were probably the biggest sellers of the bunch. All those Longines Symphonette box sets that clutter up the floors of the thrift stores, traceable back to my grandfather. While I'm quite proud that my grandfather ran a division that found its way into the lyrics of a They Might Be Giants song, Birdhouse in Your Soul, I do feel a tiny bit of remorse for having cluttered up every garage and sales store and thrift store and used record store in the entire country. Any of you who have Longines Symphonette Society opinions or stories, I won't be offended if you don't like the records. I'm not a big fan myself but I'd like to know if they had an impact on any of you. This is a thread posted to a forum November 30th, 2006. The fact that it's that old means it's unlikely that I would ever be able to trap down crap from the past, a well-known member of a Steve Hoffman music forum from 2006, to confirm for him, somebody I'm assuming might be my same age or in the same ballpark, that yes, I deeply appreciate the work that his grandfather did all those years ago, and that I understand the sentiment that, yes, this is the number one thing you're likely to see cluttering up the vinyl section of a, uh, of a library book sale someday, the music that you're most likely going to find at the flea market if you're finding box sets available for sale at the flea market, but I'll differ in one respect. I've gotten old enough over the years to acquire a nostalgic reappreciation of the things that I liked most as a kid that I can say with a great deal of authority that there are few, if any, songs I liked better than the Masterpieces of Music version of Wieniawski's Polonaise or the Mexicali Brass recording of Golden Wedding under the original Spanish title, La Cinquantaine. Longines Symphonette has had an impact on me, and I remember hearing Flood, probably the very day it came out, working at a record store, Un unboxing the new releases and seeing the uh, They Might Be Giants album. Actually, you know, to tell you the truth, in a moment of nostalgia, I'm remembering it even better. It wasn't Tuesday, new release day. It was the following Saturday. And it was one of the new releases that had come out that had not sold yet. And I was a little bit concerned. It wasn't that we had a ton of them. We may have only had 10 or 11 copies in the store. But they weren't moving like I thought they should for They Might Be Giants, it had some success with their first couple of albums. So I remember getting a copy, cracking it open, putting it into the in-store play over the speakers for everyone to hear. And that line about, my story's infinite, like a Longines Sinfonette, it never rests. I was hooked from that moment. Not just for They Might Be Giants, for uh, dropping a reference that maybe at the time I was the only person, customer or employee of the record store, who even got. But it reminded me that there's a little piece of my childhood here that made a difference. From a pop culture perspective, it had the credibility of these two New Yorkers who'd formed the Dial-A-Song method of delivering music for crying out loud. From Dial-A-Song and the bleeding edge of alternative rock, you got to remember, back then, They Might Be Giants was more than just alternative. They were on the edge of alternative rock in terms of sheer weirdness. If the weirdness of They Might Be Giants and what I consider to be the blasé normalness of Longines Symphonette had a connection. There was plenty of room between those polar opposites for me to fit in comfortably. So, as I look back and say, how do you tip a hat to a watch company for putting out albums as a marketing technique? How do you name uh, an entity like the Longines Symphonette Society that doesn't even exist anymore as a different drummer? I don't have to. I think, just through sheer happenstance, I've stumbled across the name of the person who deserves the credit. And again, even though I didn't know his name, or even that there was a name to know a year ago, I was aware of Jack Stelzer's work. And Jack Stelzer's work, from the perspective of vinyl box sets and used record stores and Record Store Day, is just about as important a figure in music history as I could possibly name. 
Greetings from the Cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. One of the reasons I've been more intentional this year about celebrating Record Store Day has been the influence of the Seder Sphere, podcast promo I've just played. Cindy, the co-host of that show, has been pretty intentional this week leading up to Saturday in sharing information on Twitter, uh, schedules, special releases, uh, you know, just retweeting things from record stores in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, of course, there's no shot that I was going to make my way into a used record store in the San Francisco Bay Area this week. But I did go to my nearby local used record store. And I did so in part because it's something maybe that the Satyrs Fear and I have in common. A perspective about local business. A perspective about local art and local artists. And that's, to me, what Record Store Day ought to be celebrating. There's nothing more unique than an individual's personal tastes. And one of the ways that my personal taste shows up is in music. All of us think we have this broad range of music, and we all do. The range from whatever we listen to that we're the most proud of to whatever we listen to that we're the most embarrassed about is our range of music. I just think that when I hit the shuffle button on my MP3 player, it is very unlikely that anybody that I've ever met, or anybody that I ever will meet, would produce a range quite as shocking as that one. Mainly it's because I don't say no to music. I don't say no to music that's new. I will give music a try. If you go back to the Inappropriate Conversations show from July 2013 called Harder Core Than Thou, number 124, you'll get a sense of that range just from the individual genres that I've chosen to select from, but I didn't include jazz in that show, and I didn't include easy listening in that show either. Just the existence of easy listening music might be enough to give you a sense of what kind of range you're dealing with. As I went out to prepare for Record Store Day, last couple of weeks, actually, it wasn't just this week, I was searching for things like Longines Symphonette and the music of Giselle McKenzie. And I don't know whether or not there was an effort to celebrate Record Store Day with these digital box sets, but iTunes had a great price on a 50-song collection from Giselle McKenzie called Don't Let the Stars Get in Your Eyes. My disappointment was that most of these songs were in English rather than French, I'll get back to that on a future show, more likely than not. But for less than $10, 50 tracks by Giselle McKenzie, in an easy listening vein, you could say, well, it's easy listening, who would want it? I got, a, I got news for you, the people who would want it would want it uh, at a regular price, not just a bargain price. The other purchase that I made this week was doing a search online for digital recordings available by Longines Symphonette. And what I found for almost 50 bucks was a 50-song five-album collection uh, in the typical format from Longines Symphonette called Country Brass. In many ways, it sounds a lot like the Mexicali Brass playing country songs, although because I downloaded everything digitally, I don't have those liner notes to guide me through and give me any hints here. No, instead I went to emusic.com and found the same recording available for $6.49. That's right, 50 songs for less than $6.50. To me, that was the great bargain that I went out and got on used record store day. And I'm still working my, my way through these songs, some familiar, some unfamiliar, because I'm not that familiar with the early, uh, early 50s period of country music. But it is nice to see the irreverent use of horns and guitar once again in an easy listening instrumental collection being put out by the Longines Symphonette Society. I hope that our understanding of music doesn't devolve to the point where we no longer have any idea what it means to talk about music in a physical form. There's a risk of that. We are already in a period in time where there may be people who don't recognize an album when they see it, or can't distinguish between a cassette tape and an 8-track cassette tape, and don't necessarily have any idea what vinyl is, short of this resurging format from back in the old days, but... I still think of music often as not in album form. It shows up here in this inappropriate conversation where there's particular songs that I think of their position on the album. That William Tell Overture, by the way, was in the middle of one of the sides. It wasn't at the beginning or the end. And 
That's about to be lost if we think of things truly from the perspective of downloading, especially if we're just downloading pieces and parts, and not the whole thing. In that allmusic.com review of the Led Zeppelin box set, Thomas Erlewine calls it out really, really well there. The notion that Led Zeppelin's music was meant to be understood in a sequence that the band recorded on vinyl for very specific reasons, and you take it out of that sequence, and maybe it changes the experience in a way that is interesting, and that's good, but maybe not ideal. Maybe just as wrong in some ways as putting the chapters in different orders and a piece of classic literature, or uh, stitching the reels together for a film in the wrong order. Hard to say. It's not quite that bad, of course. But if we lose the ability to think of music in terms of the sequence on a CD, or the sequence on an album, or side one versus side two of a cassette or an album, I suspect we've lost something. And for that reason, I'm more than willing to continue to represent on Record Store Day. You can catch inappropriate conversations in other places besides your typical location to download you know, podcasts, whether that be iTunes or something else. Uh, I listen on my iPhone, but I also listen on Stitcher Smart Radio. If I'm you know, downloading music to listen to, I'm going to do it probably on the, uh, the application that is loaded onto my phone from iPhone. But if I want to just stream... More often than not, I'm going to go to Stitcher to do that. I also listen to music both on an app and on my browser from SoundCloud. It gives me a way of listening to podcasts, music, uh, new music releases, unknown artists. I've also put some clips from past Inappropriate Conversation shows out there to give someone who wanted to go back to the very beginning, five-plus years ago, at least a hint show-by-show show of what the topics were going to be at any given time. In addition to interacting with Inappropriate Conversations via email, which I shared earlier, and the website at inappropriateconversations.org, I also can be reached at Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg there. And there are pages for uh, both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth on Facebook. Thanks for listening.